So what do I believe is right? And think, ask that question with an open heart so that with new experiences and new encounters and new information, you would be willing to change what you believe is right. And secondly, what do I think is necessary? When I assess a situation, what are the priorities that should occur when I look at that situation? Born in San Francisco, adopted and raised in New York by a novelist and illustrator mother, an ethical Wall Street banker father, Jim Clark grew up with abundance and privilege and a deep sense of love. Jim's mother would wake him each day with an exercise that conditioned him to consider every day as a blank sheet of paper. In part two, Jim discusses how he envisioned the future value of technology in the 21st century and forming the World Technology Network, a global community of peer-vetted technology experts and visionaries, and an annual award series under the banner of encouraging serendipity. Jim also discusses his perspective on the power and value of curiosity and serendipity, how he looks for patterns in history, and why remaining open to the fluidity of outcomes creates better outcomes. We discuss his new initiative, the World Congress for a New Civilization, the existential challenges we face as a society and a planet, and why he's creating a new global representation for all humanity. And there's so much more. I hope you enjoy the expansive thinking, inspirational insights, and fluid life analysis of Jim Clark. Talk to us about the, what you then created with the World Technology Network and then uh, subsequently in 2000 with your World Technology Awards. And, and also just then maybe come to why you adopted the tagline Encouraging Serendipity, which we love. Well, it wasn't um, completely uh, happy news that brought me to, um, to London, even though I'd loved the UK and loved my time there which is why I was happy to settle there. But um, in uh, 95, in a, toward the tail end of 95, in a small stretch of time, uh, my wife gave birth to our first child. New York Magazine did the first major magazine cover story that I was aware of on this new industry, which was called New Media at the time. No one knew what to call it. And they made a list of the New Media elite. And I found myself on this list which was, you know, two very exciting bits of news my, in my personal family life and my professional life, because I was finally known as a, not only as a do-gooder, but I was now known to this new world as a tech entrepreneur. And um, I had some strange headaches and I went in to uh, have an MRI. And uh, uh, in the first appointment, looking at the MRI, the doctor said, uh, you have multiple sclerosis. And uh, so I was um, having, a, I, for about a year, I had really frightening symptoms and episodes. I sometimes couldn't hold a glass of water without spilling it. I was, uh, had episodes of spreading numbness at one point through my whole body, scalded my legs, dipping my toe in the bathtub, thinking that the temperature was perfect, and then bringing the other leg in and realizing that it was boiling. It was very scary, and I had this new child, and my ex-wife was uh, uh, born, in, was European, and um, her family was in, uh, she was Dutch, but her family was in Switzerland, and so she had lived for a bunch of years in the States because of me, and I thought, well, why don't we move to Europe, and I can, I thought maybe I'm going to be in a wheelchair in five years, and so we moved to London, where I had friends from my Cambridge days, was closer to her family, I spoke the language. And uh, the symptoms began to get better. So the f 
after that first year, it wasn't as bad, but I also didn't know how quickly it could change again. So I asked myself in, in um, the UK, what could I do that was based on the things that I learned that I was good at, which was bringing people together in networks, small end networks, to do things sooner and better than they might have done otherwise. I was good at synthesizing different observations of uh, historical facts and trends and opportunities. And I had my, my uh, annoying ongoing social conscience. So I put that all together. Oh, there's one other thing. I was thinking, of course, what's the 21st century going to be like? And I was thinking that if the 20th century was largely driven by geopolitical forces, which sometimes in concert with technological forces, I thought the 21st century was going to be driven by technological forces that would then have geopolitical implications. So I thought the if the 20th century had the UN, then the 21st century would probably need something that would capture the community that was creating the future around science and technology. So I put all that together and decided to create the World Technology Network. And I thought I'll get the people creating the 21st century and all the different fields of IT and communications and biotech and health and medicine and energy and materials and space, but also related fields like finance and marketing and education and environment and ethics and policy and so on, and create a global network, a global community. And I thought of this as sort of a 50-year project that would have a slow start, but the idea was very appealing very quickly to people. Within a few months, The Economist magazine became our uh, global media partner. I started to invite people to be um, initial members of the network. And I did that for about a year and a half or so, maybe two years, where I was doing some events and I was uh, adding people slowly to the network. And at one point, it occurred to me that as exciting and as interesting as it was, I was building Jim Clark's technology network, not the World Technology Network. So I thought, what could I do to create a global vetting mechanism for who should really be in the network in the opinion of their peers, not just me or the people that I knew? And so at that point, I thought the world doesn't need another awards program on its own, but this would be a good vetting mechanism. So I created the World Technology Awards, assigned 20 categories that covered the whole sort of sci-tech ecosystem, and uh, began to invite initial members to be nominators. And then within a year or two, we didn't have to because the winners and finalists of the awards would become the fellows, and that became a virtuous cycle. And then the line, encouraging the serendipity. I gave you a couple of examples of how I'd had serendipitous encounters in my life. And those are only two examples. My life had been so filled with serendipitous encounters that some of my friends had a term for it since I was a child called gymisms. And gymisms were statistically improbable events with positive outcomes that would only happen to Jim. That was kind of the view um, because they would happen. The idea was that Jim's life was a series of gymisms interspersed by very brief periods of normalcy. And again, I didn't want to read too much mystically into that, although it's possible to, because it's just the sheer improbability of, of these things were one after the other for years, you know, would give you pause. But I was thinking definitely, why did some people experience more serendipity than others in the eyes of others? And it seemed to me that, you know, laying aside the mystical, it was I had a certain mindset, and my mindset was just, you know, insatiable curiosity, a deep passion about the things 
stubborn levels of passion about the things that I cared about combined with the curiosity meant that I was always looking for, always filtering my experience, new experiences and new encounters with people and ideas through my passions. And therefore, I would find more often than people who only focused on the things they thought were important, I thought everything could be potentially important. So because I was casting a much wider net and scrutinizing with a deeper, stubborn passion, I often would have these serendipitous outcomes that made me think that this was something that even though random positive things by definition, you know, shouldn't be able to be anything but random, I thought you could actually increase the odds. You could encourage something that otherwise was random by having a certain mindset and exposing yourself to more people and ideas without prejudging from where significance would come. So I've got a question about that process you were going through. Getting into that mindset is quite difficult. I mean, I was listening to a, a 19, I think it was a 1997, funnily enough, or 1990, might be 92 even, John Cleese talking about creativity and the process and on and off mindset and getting into a place where you've got enough space, time, and he says time twice. But yeah, he talks about space, time, time, confidence, and having humor to get into a space where you, you're, it's a, almost a playful mindset where what I think um, De Bono calls you get into the intermediate impossibles where you can imagine anything as being from that is random and maybe a juxtaposition, but could become something that's really interesting. Like a where, blank sheet of paper. Exactly, yeah. Where do you go or how do you frame these moments? Do you plan them or does it just come to you in any moment? Or is there a discipline to when you get into that state of, because you're thinking deep and you're thinking broad about these infinite possibilities of what you could make possible. And as you said, a lot of people just stick within their specific track of what they know and what they're sure of. I've always been an intense level amateur historian. And to me, that's sort of an obvious thing to be if you want to understand the world is to not only rely on your own experience, but but not discount it at all. Be very much immersed in your own experience, but also look at the experience of, of most others through time and look for patterns. And the there was a great old television series, um, James Burke's Connections, which wonderful series. Um, and he was a advisor to the World Technology Network early on before he passed away. But if you look at history, I mean, the the amount of times that serendipitous encounters of people and ideas and ideas and ideas were the crucial turning points in in uh, important ripple effects, because all action exists in a dynamic system. We know this from physics, that everything that exists is existing additionally through the variable of time and is evolving because nothing does not change. And if that's the case, then a state of perpetual awareness and perpetual openness to the unexpected directions of change without discounting probabilities. So you can still say, this is the most likely outcome. But if you don't rule out the other outcomes in many cases, and you scan more widely, cast a wider net, history shows that, you know, that, that is why history is so difficult to predict. 
The fact that history is difficult to predict shouldn't cause us to throw our hands up. It should say, well, how does it play out? And surfing it, surfing the cycle, the unpredictable cycles of history is not possible with great certainty, but it's more possible than you think if you're, you're redefining what's significant. Now, that may seem like circular reasoning. We often see that with entrepreneurship, right? The entrepreneur never gives up, but to the objective outside observer, the thing they succeeded at the end is not the thing that they said they were going to do in the beginning. But to the entrepreneur, it's the same way an artist. You know, it, it's, they created a different, better art than they originally had in mind because they were open to the fluidity of the outcome. History can teach us to be open to the fluidity of the outcome. Therefore, we can find more things that we can define as part of, of a pattern and patterns that we can uh, align with that as long as you separate yourselves from the disappointment of the idea that there's only one outcome that you'll be satisfied with and everything else is a frustration to you, if you flip that on its head, <laughs> you will, lo and behold, find uh, much more positive outcomes because you're willing to define more outcomes as positive, even unexpected. Does that make sense? It's it, a little complicated. No, but no, it, no, it doesn't. It, do, I, it does uh, make it's, sense. It's how I, mean, I choose to work in the realm of, of uh, the unlikely and think of it as not something that's impossible to encourage. Yeah, it's also, when you talk about fluidity, it brings more context because everything is just part of that journey of an evolutionary state of discovery, of learning, and puts context around failure, why certain successful entrepreneurs don't deem... And, and not say, to be discounted is the fact that, remember, you're if you're doing that, you're probably behaving somewhat differently than all the other people around you. Yeah. Not all, but most of the other people around you do not find it comfortable to live life that way. Mm -hmm. They struggle as much as possible to determine the highest probability of success based on known factors. I'm not saying discount that, but that's often what they only do. And everything else is distracting. So if you're more fluidly surfing the waves and the other people around you are only surfing one projected course that they think is going to be the only way to get to shore, then you may have some, more, some bigger spectacular wipeouts, but you're also going to have more interesting and possibly more successful rides due to your willingness to be flexible along the way. It's also very hard for many people to be comfortable with ambiguity, that by the very nature of what you're talking about involves a certain degree of ambiguity and everyone likes, most people like to embrace certainty um, and live in a state of reassurance, even if it's an unsafety but tends to be the place where everyone else is congregating, um, following the same sort of wave and the same path. And, and separating yourself, again, from, from failure, just the idea of failure. People don't like ambiguity, but they also just don't like outright public failure. And, and in part, there were evolutionary reasons for this, right? I mean, we, we evolved in part because of our ability to be a species that does a really good job at finding patterns and assessing probabilities and choosing the most likely ones. So the kind of pragmatic skill that's built into our DNA is 
helped us to uh, succeed. But it has a downside. In a world of so much opportunity, like the modern world, so much complexity and so much, so much nuance and so much high-speed evolution, that creates a new possibility to rank higher the ability to be open to ambiguity and to rank higher the ability to disassociate yourself from uh, negative feelings related of shame related to failure. How much do you ascribe the daily exercise that your mother gave you to that ability to be able to feel comfortable with ambiguity, knowing that you're always in a state of reinvention and that you can define your path and your future? I would say it's not, it's not just my mother. It's just a whole... It's an amalgam of everything. Every, that everything that my life experience has taught me is that um, uh, the more I cherish the opportunity to be alive, which is an extremely open-ended experience to be alive by definition, the happier I am and the greater high-level experiences that I can experience, the more that I narrow my experience and attempt to eliminate risk and attempt to eliminate ambiguity, the more often after the fact, I regret it. It, you know, there's nothing wrong with being practical about certain things, but the but the more I overemphasize that, the 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 less wonder I experience. I want to loop it back to something which is um, relates to you know how do you how do you choose what to do in that kind of with that worldview? How to choose what to do is is a version of the existential question of you know who am I and why am I here and what's my purpose? But it's a it's a more career version of um, a more life paths destiny version. What do I do? What do I do with my time and energy in this life that I have? And I believe that it, most of us and all of us at one time or another, you know, put on masks because we want to fit in, right? There's the tension in human evolution between the tribe and fitting into the tribe and innovating enough so that the tribe can survive so that you don't uh, behave in an endless loop of behavior in a dynamic situation of existence. So, um, there's that constant tension. So we often want to fit in. It's a big, we're very tribal, and that causes us to often behave in ways that are not entirely authentic because there's a reward of being inauthentic, which was we don't get ostracized from the from our tribe, which has kept our ancestors alive. So when you have a gap between your true self and how you behave, that causes shame. And shame has all sorts of downside behaviors, including projection. And were you to imagine a world filled with billions of people experiencing shame and then projecting, it would look like what we have today. It would look like what we have chronicled through history and literature. Um, in other words, the human experience is, is often about the expression of the shame and the disconnect between our inauthentic tribal signaling and connection and bonding with who we are individually. When we take the clearest path to ourselves, we experience less shame. In a world where we now have the ability for many of us, not all on the planet, but many more than in the past have the ability to be more authentic and still survive, that's something that's very exciting, I think, for people to start doing. So I ask myself, well, how in that world, how do you ask, what should I do? And I believe that it comes down to asking two questions simultaneously. One, 
what do I believe is right? And I don't mean this in an orthodox sense of once I believe something is right, I don't have any ability to change it. It's so many bad things in history have happened because people ask, what do I believe is right? And then they take an orthodox, stubborn, unbending view. So what do I believe is right? And think, ask that question with an open heart so that with new experiences and new encounters and new information, you would be willing to change what you believe is right. And secondly, what do I think is necessary? When I assess a situation, what must is what are the priorities that should occur when I look at that situation? And that's using your head. But again, new information, new experience, open mind that you could change that. So you do the best that you can at that moment, being open to changing. What do I think believe is right? What do I think is necessary? The answer to that is probably what you should do. I'll give you an example. If you're walking down a country lane and you see um, buildings on the side of the street, two-story wooden buildings, uh, you're all alone. You see a child on the balcony of one of those buildings. The building's on fire. Their parents left them for the first time ever. You go risk your life and you rescue the child. And in the evening news that night, the uh, reporter interviews you and says, you know, you're a hero. And the person always blushes and sort of says, no, no, no. And they, they said, well, what were you thinking? And they say some version or another of there was no alternative. It, it, it was the, clearly the right thing to do. I didn't think about it. It was necessary, right? Again, what do I believe is right and what do I think is necessary? Innocent, condensed, clear situation. But that could apply to every situation. We call the people who do those things heroes because it's so rare that people just go right at those questions. What do I believe is right and what do I think is necessary? They remove the masks and they just go right at it. And I think that um, when you combine that way of thinking with this openness to new experience, the openness to understand the ability to encourage serendipitous outcomes, I think you create the chances for the richest possible life and the best possible contribution of your life to the addressing of that which is right and necessary. When you describe it that way, I'd written a question to ask you about, do you consider serendipity to, to have economic value? If you were to create a force multiplier effect of that, of people following essentially what they believe to be right, and as you said, be with an open heart and do what's necessary in the world on a force multiplier, that would have huge impact in the world. So it wouldn't just be your one-off everyday sort of heroes or your CNN annual celebrated heroes. This, that would create a significant societal effect. If you, if you started to educate children in schools to think that way with that level of individuality and that sense of identity, of really understanding, as our friend Chantal Martin says, understanding who are you and understanding that you are you in its own very specific set of characteristics, that would help us define probably our future path in a world which we'll get on and talk to in a world where AI is going to become increasingly prevalent. Yeah, I mean, I, I would call that, and I, and I did in a talk once, a courageous civilization. In other words, the civilization we have right now, objectively speaking, seems to be, although it has created wonderful things, here and there and overall, it's also created not-so-wonderful things. 
I would define our current global civilization as utterly unsustainable and morally indefensible. The unsustainability part is not just environmental, it's also politically in ways that, you know, most people can imagine, but also it's morally indefensible in the sense that there are things that we tolerate at such a massive scale year after year after year that we define as that's just the way it is. And we define progress as tinkering at the margins with these things, even if we do make progress, which we do and we have. But that's morally indefensible. And I think that's the product of billions of individuals not asking, what do I believe is right and what do I think is necessary, or not doing so with an open mind and an open heart. And so that's why you get the history that we've had. If everyone began to ask that, we made it easier for them to ask that. And we made the negative consequences of them not asking that to be different. We would make it possible for individuals to be more courageous, ethically, morally courageous, and more authentically expressive of themselves, and multiplied over an entire society. That would be what I would call a courageous civilization a less shame-based civilization and a civilization that would be less likely to deal with its shame in, in uh, subconscious ways that collectively form the kind of projection that we see in the behavior of, of entire societies right now to the degree that everyone, not everyone, large numbers of people think is unsustainable or morally indefensible or both. I'm one of them. And I think we need a new civilization. I think we need a courageous civilization. And my newest organization that I created uh, that I launched in November at uh, one of the UN offices here in New York is called the World Congress for a New Civilization. And it's, I don't know if you want, would like me to explain a little bit more about it. but Absolutely. So Again, think of what I said earlier about trim tabs and sort of looking at the world through, you know, where where can you have these things that if you put them in the right place and you design them in the right way, they have the greatest possible impact, number one. Number two, on a civilizational level, what do, when I look at the civilizational situation, what do I think is right and what do I think is necessary, not just for myself, but at a civilizational level? And so if I look at the situation, I see that we have massive global challenges, self-evident massive global challenges, including possibly existential level challenges, particularly around the environment. And we have global institutions in the political governmental realm, in the economic and industrial realm, and in the cultural realm. Give you an example, the United Nations and the governmental realm, the World Economic Forum and the uh, economic realm and the and TED, let's say, or groups like it in the cultural realm. The elite of the world, of which in whether I like it or not, in terms of my access to resources and to people and to ideas and so forth, the amount of privilege that I have, I'm in that world. Now, whether that's 100,000, 500,000, or a million, it's a fraction of the greater than 7.5 billion people on the planet today. And there's huge overlaps in those elite institutions. I believe that many of those institutions are often actually correct in their assessment of the problems in the world, not always, but often, and are quite thoughtful in their prescriptions. Yet, 
for lots of reasons, the vast majority of the world population does not feel connected to the problem solving. They think that it's something that a bunch of certain kinds of people do, and those kinds of institutions are going to do. And in the absence of that involvement, often the people who are part of those communities, myself included, we think, well, that's what we do. And we is a very small group of people. So I think of those things as sort of the, those types of the political, governmental, the economic, industrial, and the cultural sort of three legs of the table. But the table is not stable unless you have the fourth leg. And the fourth leg is the world's population, the rest of humanity. So I was thinking, how, what kind of institution would be, would be a global democratic institution that would begin to involve the vast majority of the world's people. So I thought, why not in the next couple of years do I work with others to organize the most representative large-scale gathering in human history? Bring a few thousand people, as representative as possible of all of humanity, together for a week. Just as the wonderful event in and of itself, fascinating event in and of itself, justifiable event in and of itself, but also as a kickoff and catalyst for a longer-term process. So we're going to uh, do a global nomination and selection process, country by country, one-half men, one-half women, a third under the age of 35, roughly by population, so the Chinese and Indian delegations would be the largest, no small country, fewer than three people is the current thinking, and to have sophisticated sort of nomination and uh, process and nominators to help suggest the people have approval process, ability to refine that process, to select the people. Secondly, to have a parallel process to create a document of the core common aspirational values of humanity. So even though there's a lot of stuff that people around the world don't agree on, there's a lot that they do and things, there, there have been attempts to codify this through documents like the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of the Right of Man or the UN Declaration of Human Rights, etc. Wasn't there that thing done in 2012 called the Declaration of Interdependence? Yeah. yeah. There's, and again, these are usually done by the elite communities amongst each other on behalf of everyone else. So we've begun a process to create a, a drafting process for a document called the Declaration of Civilization which would be those common values that would be discussed and debated and edited and so forth with the goal of being ratified at that first World Congress for a New Civilization gathering. Equally important is how do you engage a lot of people? So I want to make sure, we, with the budget for this we're thinking is probably about $11 million all told, but about a million is the operational budget for the organization. About $10 million is this massive event. The million dollars we can raise in philanthropically and through individual donors, including, you know, if people listening to this podcast want to get involved, we're happy to talk with them. But the, I, I think it's very cons- important that the vast majority, 90% of the money come in a way consistent with the view for the organization. So we're going to launch a kind of crowdfunding slash public engagement campaign. I want 1 million donors averaging $10 each spread out all over the world, but not $10. The innovation here would be that we're going to ask for one hour of your income. So if you 
earning $1,000 an hour in New York as a lawyer, you could give that. If you're in a $2 a day place, you give an hour of your income there. But you don't just give the hour of your income. You have to commit to keeping informed and involved 100 people that you know. So what you have is a few thousand people gathering for the most representative large-scale gathering in history, supported by a million donors spread out over the planet, engaging 100 million people spread out over the planet. And if 100 million people spread out over the planet know about this process and see people like them in the process, then the chances of them getting so much more engaged go way, way up. And the ability of 100 million people to ensure that the rest of the planet knows about this is much greater as well. So I think that through what would normally be considered you know, fractional to some of the major philanthropic projects in the world today, that we can actually launch and create a global democratic institution for the 21st century that can work in partnership and help support the work of these existing organizations and their existing efforts, like the Sustainable Development Goals, underpinning them with underpinning this effort with a core document that states what we as humans agree in the 21st century we really aspire to in common as a maypole around which a lot of other things can wrap. This process to me is an attempt to take the question on a civilization level, what do I believe is right and what do I think is necessary, and turn it into an organization that massively increases the sense of involvement and the reality of involvement of much more of the strands of human belief and thought, making it people much more engaged in the outcomes and doing so at a time when if we don't do that, we are being irresponsible given the fact that we are facing massive challenges, including existential ones. So this may not work exactly as I say. It probably won't play out exactly as I'm saying right now. But it seems like worth trying given what are the facts that we observe right now. Well, as you say, you're doing it with an open mind and open heart. Be prepared to evolve and change. It's interesting that it is, it's coming from a ground up and a groundswell of opinion to create a unified view of, from the masses rather than them have people having to embrace a top-down declaration of what should unite us. So I think that's very interesting. There was someone we were speaking to recently that said, all you need is 3% of a population to create mass change in any society. So once you get that 100 million people on board, it certainly puts you in a, the, the world in a situation where the global elites and governments and institutions will have to pay attention for sure. It's very convenient for all of us sometimes to not know what others who could get in our way and may not, but could, or could complicate our path, um, believe. So we go through as humans elaborate efforts to not know until we want to know. And an effort like this, which makes it more difficult to not know what humanity believes and thinks, has potentially enormous power in a positive way, or at least, let's say, a more ethically justifiable way. We haven't talked about AI and what you're doing with the events um, in that area, but we can we can always do a follow-up. Well, just very quickly on the World Technology Network, the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, hosted by the 
uh, forward-thinking city of Prague, will be holding the first international congress for the governance of AI. The goal of catalyzing the beginnings of a global mechanism to create agile governance in a world of AI so that all the different disparate efforts can share more easily and coordinate more easily amongst themselves as the world adjusts to the implications of an AI-driven world. And uh, we have the uh, overall chair of the event is Michael Muller, who just uh, stepped down uh, most recently as the director general of the UN's Geneva headquarters. We have about um, 80 to 90 leading AI figures as advisors for this project. We have some of the most amazing speakers in the field um, coming the city of Prague has given us the extraordinarily beautiful National Museum as the host site. And uh, I believe that it genuinely will achieve to some degree our original vision a year and a half ago for this based on the original ideas continually championed of, of uh, my collaborator in this, Wendell Wallach, who's the winner of the World Technology Award for Ethics in 2014 and Media and Journalism 2015, I believe that we will uh, begin a the creation of a global mechanism through this process. Good. Well, all, all the best for that. I mean, it's much needed. It's also an interesting model for other fields in this era of uh, exponential technology. Mm-hmm. Well, I suspect we might have to do a follow-up to go deeper on this when you get back from Prague and hear what actually happens. So quick of our questions. Um, what principles do you stand by? Again, as much as possible, asking myself in every situation, what do I believe is right? What do I always think is necessary? Second one is to, uh, I wrote this down and, and made a life oath promise uh, commitment when I turned 18 to... Uh, always look at life through the sense of awe and wonder of a child and to never allow myself to become cynical. That was something that I noticed almost all adults to some degree had almost as a defining characteristic of adulthood. And it was one I did not wish to ever acquire. And I've believed that so far, even with great cause for temptation, I have managed to maintain my oath. And then the um, final thing, which is more a personal one, which is, and more recently learned or recently accepted, is um, be careful what you wish for because you may get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely with you on that one. Uh, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision down the road? You know, I think it's, for all of us, it's often the most difficult are in matters of the heart because that's where the most complexity and nuance exists, even if it seems that it doesn't. It's just messier in there. So the hardest decisions for me, even in retrospect, if they seem obviously good ones, have been uh, uh, related to matters of, of of the heart. You know, I also think that uh, saying no also um, to seemingly great tempting opportunities um, is very difficult. And it's especially difficult for people who are explorers because everything is interesting to you. So the fact that I'm in, involved in in so many kinds of activities is actually, from my perspective, the opposite. I've I, I can't believe how many things I've decided not to do or said no to. Even to others, it looks like that I'm doing, you know, a lot of different things. Um, I did ask you where you go or 
your process for thinking new ideas and looking at the future and the possibilities out there, but is there any particular place where you go to either solve problems or discover new ideas physically? I, I go to a mental space. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of, um, you know, people have talked these different things, you know, the fugue state or the zone or, you know, sort of um, fluid flow state. I love just untethering my preconceptions when I'm facing a challenge. And uh, there's that great scene in um, Apollo 13 when um, uh, they have to rescue the the astronaut in, in space who's alone and everyone comes up all these great theoretical ideas and then the guy says, look, the only stuff we have to work with is what's here on the table. And he dumps, there's a small number of things. But a small number of things without preconception have an incredible number of permutations of applications. So to me, I go to this place where I say, what have I got to work with? And it may not seem like a lot, but it seems like less if I think, if I start with the obvious solution sets. If I say, what's the, if I start with what's the craziest, weirdest idea and approach, then that may not be the idea, but it opens the floodgates to, um, you know, the mixing and the, and the serendipitous and uh, epiphanies and insights. So I just go to a mental place and say, forget what you know, forget what you think you know, forget what you think you've got to deal with. Look at what you're, the assets you're working with, with no preconceptions, and let's just see what happens. What's one problem worth solving? Great question. When I talked about the, asking the question, what do I believe is right and what do I think is necessary? presupposes that we know what we believe. So I think that one of the greatest questions we can ask as a kind of prerequisite for leading the courageous life is to work on what is it that you value? Because if you're borrowing your ethics, what I call borrowed ethics, as a shortcut, tell me religion or guru or whatever, what I should believe is right then you're like a three-year-old child who's told not to put their hand on the stove because they're going to burn their hand. And it's not until they burn their hand that the lesson really hits home. So you need to have your own personal experiential ethics as much as possible. And that means you need to really ask yourself what you believe is right, what you value, before you can take any of these other steps with confidence and without shackles holding you back, the shackles of your own indecision of who you are. That's a, that is a great answer. If you could return to one night, one day in history, um, where, what, are to see who? This isn't about changing history. Yeah. It's not about changing history. No, no. Yeah. But the, what would, would I like to be witness to? Yeah, just if you go back somewhere and say, I want to be there at that place in time. I mean, you could you to say, I would change history. And by all means, do so. It's it's an open question. It's just what, where, when, who. I think I wouldn't narrow it down to one person. I think that I love being present for myself and for others to the moment of epiphany. So I would think there's a whole bunch of epiphanies that have been world-changing in history. We just have to go back to James Burke Connections. (laughs) There's a whole list there. And just, you know, just 
be there when someone says, aha, you know, aha, I, I didn't see it that way before. And if you think of, of um, the future as a cone of possibility, where the constraints of the present are the narrowest and the further you go out in the future, the, the broader, uh, wider the volume of space is in that cone. It's those pinpoint moments where new cones of possibility that cr- get creative that I, w- I would love to be you know, present for just to either feel an internal sense of awe as, as new universes are born from, from these these new universes are these cones of possibility from, from a, a, a new idea, often a serendipitous encounter, or to interact and just, you know, give someone whatever the historical equivalent at the time would be of a high five. Okay, I love that. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Divine Matrix, and it's just a great term, and a, a wrinkle in the matrix. And I think that's, you know, this is the way you're talking about cones and the possibilities. It's like these little wrinkles happen and they just start to ripple out. What's the one question no one asks you that you wish they would? Wow, that's that's the kind of question that should be the basis of almost all good relationships. <laughs> I mean, I think a beautiful question, not just for me, for anyone in any relationship between anyone of any sort, would be, how can I help you? How can I comfort you? How can I assist you? How can I interact with you in the way that is most consistent with who you are. Okay, full of kindness. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hard taskmaster. Regret, um, you know, second-guessing, observation. You know, I don't think, um, obviously other people can make you feel shame, but no one can make you feel more deep shame, more resonant shame, more impactful catalytic shame and regret than yourself. Because you know what you did. You know what you think. You know what you felt. You know your motivations. You know in the ways that you can never put into words the nuances of your light and shadow that you know determine the extent to which you wish to decide to change. You're the first person that said that. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to someone just about to graduate study um, that's got a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told that's impossible? First, ask yourself, who's told you it's impossible and do they have an agenda? Secondly, look at history. And history is a massive, endless, ever-involving, ever-growing encyclopedia of things that weren't supposed to happen. In fact, history is largely determined by the impossible occurring. So I believe the there are some things that are factually, physically so unlikely or according to the laws of physics impossible that they are de facto impossible. That's a very specific group of things. For a graduate deciding what to do with their life, to equate those sorts of things with the flexibility of a human life is a very sad thing. The goal to ask yourself, again, what do I believe is right? What do I think is necessary? 
with no thought to the feasibility of it is the most likely way to get you on the right path and the most likely way to create the ability to have uh, a happy, fulfilling, and probably productive life. Okay. Brilliant answer. Last two questions. Um, what book do you want us to offer listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? What book? What book? I mean, I can think of a bunch of, you know, much more esoteric books, but I actually think um, a really useful one to read right now is uh, Snow Crash. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, by yeah. Neil Stevenson. And uh, it's a great speculative science fiction book uh, about a near future that we are almost in right now. And uh, I think it's... Uh, for me and for a lot of other people, it was it was very catalytic. Yeah, I agree. That's a great book. I must read it again, actually. Um, who should we interview next? Final question. I'm not going to answer that because I can think of so many people and I don't want to single uh, anyone out. I've introduced already a few people to you. From what I know, the way you choose uh, who to interview next is uh, suggestions to people you've interviewed. So just keep doing that. That's yeah. a, a <laughs> serendipity engine. Okay, well, we always wrap up with an acknowledgement and a thank you. So, first of all, thank you for making the time and the wonderful answers, thoughtful, considered answers. And would just love to acknowledge you for your, uh, so many things, um, your willingness to embrace nuance, ambiguity, curiosity, and, and your voracious exploration of what's possible. And, and keep on, I think, trim-tabbing because we're better off with it. So thank you very much for your time and look forward to follow-up. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.